Good morning, everybody. All right, we are moving along in one story, one story, working our way through the Bible together, both in reading it individually and also um, going through teaching uh, as we plow our way through. It is helpful, probably helpful to know that the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Say that with me, Pentateuch. Comes from two words, penta, which means five, uh, uh, like the Pentagon. The Pentagon is a five-sided building in D.C. Uh, it coincidentally also means uh, five people paid to do one job. Uh, kidding, don't say things like that. That's not funny, okay? Uh, penta means five. Tuk means scroll. So basically this means the five scrolls. First five books of the Old Testament. The Jews called it the Torah. Um, in the New Testament, it's referred to as the law. When you read this phrase in the Bible, the law and the prophets, the law is referring to these first five books uh, of the Old Testament. It's essentially the work of Moses. Now, Moses did not write every single word in the Pentateuch. We know that, for instance, because in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, it, rec uh, it records the death of Moses. Obviously, he did not write about that. Uh, he'd be the first to write the commentary on his own death. Uh, also in Numbers 12.3, uh, it has this statement. It says, now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I have a hard time picturing Moses writing, I was mo far more humble than anyone else walking the planet at the time. So obviously, some assistance uh, was involved. But it's all basically associated with Moses. And Genesis is the introduction to the whole thing. Uh, last week, we were in Genesis, and we looked at the creation now, as we go further on in Genesis, we're going to look at four scenes this week together, four scenes. Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of the flood, and the Tower of Babel. We're going to see in four moves the downward spiral of the human race, and we're also going to look at God's response to all this. I also want to mention that we're going to be in this series for 30 to 40 weeks uh, there are 66 books in the Bible, so it doesn't take a math genius to figure out we're going through this in highlight form. We won't spend time in every single book uh, here together on Sundays, although most of us will read each book during the course of the year. But it will give us time to get quite grounded in the Bible. So we're going to spend more time in some books like the book of Genesis than some other ones because Genesis obviously has more foundational material, and you'll see that as we go. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Genesis chapter two, we're gonna look in verse 17 here is where it says, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, some people look at this sometimes and they wonder, well, doesn't God want the man to know the difference between good and evil? Well, the idea behind this command is not that if Adam and Eve eat from the tree, they will gain moral discernment. No, moral discernment is a good thing. The idea here is they're saying, now we'll be able to decide what's good and evil, quite apart from anyone or anything else, apart from God or anyone else. Now, we can kind of, in some way, shape, or form, be our own gods. We can, we can make these decisions on our own. God is simply allowing the man to choose to be in community with him, or to reject it. He's really offering freedom, is what he's offering. In Genesis 3.1 it says, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
So the enemy comes in at this point. He's not called Satan in this story, but the Christian church has come to identify the serpent with the evil one of Scripture. And what follows here, friends, is an absolutely brilliant exposition on how temptation works. So follow the dynamics here as we go. First, notice the serpent's words, his, his exact words. Did God really say that you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? We just saw the command. Is that what God said? No. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. And we also are told in Genesis 2.9 that there were all sorts of trees in the garden. So they could eat from any tree except one. And the serpent says, so did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? Is that what he's saying? This is a misquote of litigious proportions here. What is the serpent up to? He's trying to plant doubt in the woman's mind, isn't he? To doubt the goodness of God. He wants her to think, can I really trust that God has my best interest at heart? If I obey God fully, you've had this thought too. If I obey God fully, will I miss out on something good? Anybody ever had a thought like that? Okay. Now in verse 2, it says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So the woman corrects the serpent, but not quite. Did you catch it? She claims that God said you must not touch it. God never said that. God never said that. See, in her mind, she's making God a little bit more severe than he actually is, making him a little more unreasonable so that in disobeying him might be a little bit more justifiable. Notice something else. The, enemy, the evil one always strikes at people's point of vulnerability, doesn't he? When God originally gave this command, who was present to hear it? Adam and Eve or just Adam? It was just Adam. So presumably, where does the woman have to get all of her information about what God said? From the man, secondhand. Here's a question just for the women in the room and for the women watching. How many of you ever known a man to have any difficulty in communication, maybe not always give fully detailed account of their conversations? Anything smack of truth there at all? Okay, all right. What's going on here is the serpent goes after the one who is not directly present to hear what God said. Notice something else. As she's engaged in this process of dealing with temptation, she does not involve the man. When we're playing with temptation, and we're doing it in isolation, we make ourselves infinitely more vulnerable. That's what she does. She doesn't talk with God. She doesn't talk with Adam. She's on her own. Okay, now, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So, she's captured. Maybe she's there thinking about what she's going to miss if she doesn't eat it. Keeps looking at it. Keeps obsessing over it. And when she does that, the next step really becomes inevitable. Now let's look at the next part of this verse. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Now immediately, we see the consequences. There's not a delayed reaction here. There's immediate consequences, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So their eyes were opened. It is what the serpent promised, isn't it? But what a nightmare they saw. They saw each other, they look at each other, and the image of God that we talked about last week, the Imago Dei, had been horribly marred and twisted. Now the man and the woman, 
who had never known shame before, they look at each other and they want to hide. They want to hide. And something happens there in human nature at that moment that I want us to be real clear about because this is an important part of Christian understanding. The theological language for this is the word depravity, depravity. That human nature suffers from something that propels us towards evil. Now in our day, people often speak about what they believe to be the basic goodness of human beings, okay? As Christians, we believe it's very good that God made human beings. And they matter to him immensely, and they were made in his image. That's a good thing. And it's true that human beings often do good things. Non-Christians also do good things, sometimes better things than Christians do. But we also know that human beings are not just simply neutral, moral agents that could just do good all the time if they just tried hard enough. The truth is, we can't. We can't. In the fall of man, Something happened to human nature, to human life, and that something is called depravity, this propensity towards evil. And you see this really, really early in life. For example, if you make a two-year-old share a toy that he's been hogging, is it likely that he will say to you, I'm so glad that it brings you joy. Would you like my blankie as well? I have multiple grandkids. It does not work this way. Depravity is this. We'd like to do what's right, but we're prepared to do wrong if it seems to, uh, if I'm looking out for myself or it even just serves my, what I believe to be my best interest, my preferences. I'm prepared to do what's wrong. And the consequences of this are horrific. Adam and Eve knew shame. They're alienated from each other and they're alienated from God. Now look at God's response to this in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Walking together is a, is a picture of intimate communion, one with another. Here, it's with God. Now, sin damages Adam and Eve's desire for that. But God still wanted it. So God calls out, Adam, where are you? We're starting to see a pattern here. God asks lots of questions. <laughs> so why does he ask Adam where he is? God's not confused. He's not lacking information. God is inviting Adam, as he does to you and to me, to freely come to him, communicate, disclose, confess. It's an act of grace. And Adam says, I heard you, and I was afraid, so I hid. There has never been fear before, ever. This is the first mention of fear in Scripture. He says, I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit of that tree in the garden? Again, God not confused here, just inviting Adam to disclose and confess. And Adam carefully reflects on the importance of taking personal responsibility for his actions and says, that woman you gave me. Like... She wasn't my idea. When it was just me and the animals, everything was a-okay. So, you know, God. And now blaming enters human history. Do you think that they will be the last married couple to blame one another for something? So God pronounces judgment, sometimes referred to as the curse. First to the serpent. We'll talk about that in just a couple minutes. Then he says to the woman, you will suffer pain in childbirth. 
Then you'll notice this statement that comes along in Genesis 3.16. Strange. It says, your desire, says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, lots of people think that husbands ruling over their wives is a part of God's original plan. Uh-uh, uh-uh. This is part of the curse that Christ comes to redeem us from. And the strife between men and women will continue on and on and on to this day as a result of the fall. Now, there, there are two other aspects to God's response here. They're kind of grace notes. God says to the serpent in verse 15, he says, there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman and her offspring. The serpent will strike at his heel, but the woman's offspring will crush the serpent's head. And that day came. You know who that person was, that offspring was? It was Jesus Christ. This is the first prophetic mention of the coming of the Messiah in the Bible. And it comes, interestingly enough, in response not to wonderful behavior, but to the first sin. God promises he's going to send a Messiah. The other thing about God's response comes in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Adam and Eve had been running around in stitched fig leaves up until this point, and they're kind of fashion-challenged. So God becomes a tailor and chooses to clothe them so they could come into his presence without being self-conscious. Again, this is grace. But notice something. He makes garments of what? Skin. For the first time in history, innocent blood is shed so that human shame might be covered and fellowship with God might be restored. God is kind of setting the stage here. Then in verses 23 and 24, God drives them out of Eden. They're no longer allowed to live there. So they lose perfect community with God and with each other, and they're driven out into what is now a fallen world. Now, the next chapter comes. Chapter 4 begins with hope. Begins with hope. It says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now, if you think about this, Adam and Eve must have wondered after the fall, would God still continue his plan to fill the earth with human beings, even though they sinned? Or now, would it just be the two of them until they died? They don't know. They couldn't have known. But then one day something happens to Eve. She feels a little nauseous, gets a little moody, starting to have strange cravings, and this has never happened before. And there are no books about this. They looked. There were no books on this. And Adam says to her, uh, looks like you're putting on a little weight there, Eve. Looks like those leopard skin yoga pants are hanging on for dear life. I'm going to have to get you a bigger skin from a bigger animal, maybe a buffalo or a brontosaurus or something. And after being throat punched, Adam says, uh, note to self, do not bring that up again. But soon a new life actually enters this world, the first new life since Adam and Eve, who had been formed by God himself. And the woman says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Adam says, the help of the Lord, what about me? She says, watch it, pal, you're still on thin ice from the buffalo comment. <laughs> but every time they look at little Cain, they're reminded, they're reminded, God's grace. He didn't let their sin kill God's dream. So soon, Abel comes along, son number two. And as they uh, grow up, Abel is a rancher. He's a shepherd. Cain is a farmer. Now look at verse 3 there. It says, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils and offering to the Lord. 
But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So God looks with favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. And people wonder why about this. Why, why did this happen? I think the best explanation for this comes in a real close look at the language itself. Abel's offering comes from the firstborn of his flock. There's this principle that we'll see in Scripture called the law of first fruits. We'll look at it a little bit more as we study together. But the idea is that when the very first returns appear, the first fruits of the tree, the first calf of the flock, I give that to God as an act of thanks and an act of trust that God will continue to provide. It's giving the first of what God has given to me. Give the first back to him. I'm not going to wait till it's easy. I'll give the first as an act of trust in God that he will continue to provide. And that's what Abel does. And that's what we're called to do every time we have an opportunity to give and to tithe. I need to remember that. We all need to remember that. Put God first. God comes first. The second phrase to notice there is that Abel gives what he refers to as fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, in our day, fat has negative connotations. We figure lean cuisine is holier than fat. But in their day, the, the battle was actually against starvation, not against fat. And fat was the term that was used to designate the, the most desirable parts there. So Abel's chosen to give what actually cost him the most, the most, the best of what he has. Now, by contrast now, Cain's offering seems to be a bit casual. And God sees this, doesn't say that he rejects Cain, doesn't say that he's mad at him. He just sees when a heart is devoted to him and one, one is going through the motions. This could have been a wake-up call for Cain. Instead, he broods and resents, and envy enters the world. Now, what I find to be interesting about this is that Cain doesn't envy Abel's wealth or his success. What does he envy? His spiritual status. So envy can strike at anyone, even spiritual people. Now look at verse 6. The Lord speaks here. It says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So you notice God is asking questions again. He's inviting Cain to come into the light, to acknowledge the condition of his heart, and to make this right. And then he, he adds this warning in there. Sin is crouching at your door. But Cain chooses darkness. He chooses darkness. Look at verse 8. Notice how the writer keeps repeating the word brother to kind of underscore the tragedy here. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And now murder enters the world. Then God comes and asks another question. Where is your brother Abel? Again, God not confused, not lacking information. Where is your brother Abel? God is inviting Cain to come clean and to confess. But now to envy and murder, Cain adds deceit. Sin is that way too. Once you start in it, it tends to take more and more and more to try to cover it up. So Cain says, I don't know, am, am I my brother's keeper? Again, he's distorting God's word. Like what, am I supposed to watch him every second? It's a way of pushing aside the real issue. And God finally says, what have you done? 
what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, like in chapter 3, chapter 4 is a story of sin. But notice a few differences here. While Eve had to be persuaded by an external tempter, Cain has no one tempting him. He also resists God's help. Adam and Eve's sin was to eat fruit. Cain murders his brother. Adam and Eve accept their judgment from God without protest. Cain complains that God's being too harsh. This is not just a rerun. Sin is becoming more firmly entrenched on the earth. This is the downward spiral right here. Now, there are a few exceptions, but generally the world goes from bad to worse in the days ahead. In Genesis 6:11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on earth had corrupted their ways. So with Cain, we see sin getting deeper. Now it gets wider. It's one bright spot on the earth. We read about him in 6, 9, Genesis 6, 9. It says, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. God says the only way this dream can be kept alive is to, is to start over again. This level of corruption is so high, there's no other way. So he's going to send a flood to the earth. God gives Noah some instructions about building a big boat. So Noah goes to Home Depot, places a really big order, and gets to work. And before long, the rain starts falling. There had never been rain. So the ground was, was watered from up, up in the ground. This is new. So rain falls from the sky, 40 days, 40 nights. Noah obeys God, and God begins the dream again. Now, after the flood, in Genesis 9.1, it says that God blesses Noah and his family, and he gives to them, again, the command that he had given so long ago. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God makes a promise to Noah, makes a covenant that he will never again destroy the earth by water. And there will be a sign of that covenant to Noah, and it's the rainbow. It's the promise of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Now, chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel story. And you understand that the point of this story is not that God is opposed to certain types of architecture. That's missing the point. The real point is, this is a commentary on the folly of human arrogance. That's what it is. Verse 4, chapter 11. The people say, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. goes on to say, Otherwise, we'll be scattered all over the earth. This is the old story. People saying, we can kind of become like God. We can stay right here and do what we want. Remember, what was the command? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're defying God's command and they're choosing to build up instead of out. And in, in uh, Genesis 11:3, the writer is actually ridiculing human arrogance here, if you catch this. Here's what it says. They said to each other, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use bricks instead of stone. Now, in Babylon, in the home of Babel, they did build with brick. In Israel, they, they used stone. Which one lasts longer, brick or stone? Stone does. The writer is saying they think they're building like gods. They don't even know enough to build with stone instead of bricks. God's saying this human capacity for self 
and for evil and for violence, this has to be restrained because if it's allowed to go unchecked, the people will destroy themselves and God doesn't want that. So God makes a change. It's kind of a funny one when you think about it. It's a language change. They've all spoken the same language up to this point. And in one instant, one guy's building the tower and says, can I borrow a hammer? Guy says, no obligating glaze. <laughs> Just like that, it's all over. Now the very outcome that they feared is what they experience. They're scattered, they're all scattered. Okay, remember, go back to the beginning here. We start with Adam and Eve and everything is good. God said it himself, it's good. But then they fall. But there's this little sign of grace. God promises redemption. And we think, well, maybe things will get better now. And he gives them Cain. But then Cain and Abel's story becomes even worse. Now there's envy and there's murder. But still God shows grace. He doesn't pull the plug on them. So we think things might get a little bit better after that, but they don't. The whole earth becomes corrupted. It's now widespread. And God, again, has grace. There's Noah. And then after the flood comes the rainbow and the covenant that he makes with humanity. And God begins again with Noah and his family. Maybe now things will finally get better. But things don't get better. Now there's Babel. Now where is God's act of grace in response to Babel? I'll tell you where it is. We're going to look at it next week in chapter 12 with a man by the name of Abraham. See, this whole introduction, this downward spiral of human beings into sin, doesn't cause God to give up. He's going to begin again, this time with one man, this man named Abraham. He's going to begin a brand new community. He's going to prepare the way for the coming of his son Jesus and for the birth of the church. Because Babel gets reversed. You know that? Babel gets reversed. At Babel, all the people were in one place. They all spoke one language. And God has to act supernaturally. And then all of a sudden they can't understand each other and they get scattered. But then comes the day when all the people who had been scattered are now gathered together. And people who spoke all different languages could now by God's act can supernaturally understand one another. That's Pentecost, the beginning of the New Testament church. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. It's the renewal of God's dream for community. And this whole downward spiral is all setting the stage for God to say, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. I'm gonna start in this tiny, obscure little way with this one little man. God is not giving up his dream. He never gives up his dream. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Uh, Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful, Lord, that when we go back and trace the beginnings, we see your hand at work in miraculous ways. And we understand you better, even as New Testament people, as the children of Pentecost. We understand your character better when we see you all the way back at the beginning. So God, continue to take these words that come from you and shape them in our own mind, in our heart, in our understanding, Lord, to, to appreciate how you've had this thing figured out since the beginning. And God, we can trust you. And not only can we trust you, but we can trust that you have our best interest at heart always. We don't ever have to worry that, well, if I fully obey God here, will I miss out on something good? That is the lie from the enemy and it goes all the way back to the beginning. So God, help us to find our rest in you, trusting in you that all good things come from you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.